This is Project Keto. I'm your host, Madeline Evergreen. This podcast is a result of my lifelong experience searching for the answers to my health struggles. I'm here to teach you the how-tos, practical tips, and tactics to eating a ketogenic diet. No more deprivation or confusion when it comes to your amazing body. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 8, where we are continuing our topic from last week and going over four more ways that digestion can go wrong. So if you missed last week's episode, be sure to stop here and go back and listen to that one first because you are going to want to understand all of the steps of digestion and all of the organs involved before we go into this topic for today. And before we jump in, I want to remind you that today... Monday, November 22nd, if you're listening to this the day it came out, today the doors to my chocolate cake course are closing. So if you were hoping to get into this online course where you learn how to make my amazing keto, gluten, sugar, dairy, grain-free chocolate cake and vanilla buttercream recipe, then you're going to definitely want to sign up for that today. And the link is going to be in the show notes for you to get registered. And don't forget to use your secret code CAKELOVE for $50 off. And now we move into talking about our topic today, digestion. So our first of four ways that digestion can go wrong Um, Remember, last week we went over a few already, but now we get into a little bit of some deeper topics, a little bit more serious things that can go wrong. And one of them would be trouble digesting fats. So if you're having nausea or bloating after your meals, or your poop is light-colored or floating, those are signs that you aren't digesting fat properly. This means that you aren't secreting bile properly, and remember bile is responsible for digesting fats. And when your poop is light-colored or floating, it is a sign that the fat has not broken down and is being excreted in its original form. And this means that you didn't absorb the nutrients from the fat either. Eventually, this means major nutrient deficiency and further health problems, so you definitely don't want that. And people who do not have a gallbladder definitely have this issue. Many people have their gallbladder removed surgically. So if that was you, you probably already noticed that you have trouble eating fatty or greasy foods. Or if you do eat them, maybe you get nausea or some people even throw up or they have the floating or the light-colored poop as well. So what can you do about this? Well, one thing that can make a big difference is taking a supplement to help with bile flow. So that would be um, something like ox bile. If you already have access to a really high quality ox bile supplement, go ahead and use that. Otherwise, I'm going to link to a supplement called LipoFlow in our show notes. So just go ahead and check out that one if you are looking for one. And that's especially going to be helpful for people who do not have a gallbladder because Yes, you do make bile in the liver, but the gallbladder is where the bile is stored. And so if you don't have a gallbladder, you're just going to have some issues with the bile flow and secretion for the rest of your life. So for those people, you're going to want to take something like lipoflow or like ox bile or some sort of gallbladder bile support um, every time you eat a fatty meal. 
And for people that do have a gallbladder, you may need to take one of those types of supplements in the meantime, but then work on improving your digestion and your gut health, and hopefully you're able to resolve the issues. So one of the most important ways to improve this issue if you do have a gallbladder is to make sure that you're eating in a relaxed state and chewing your food properly. And you're probably saying, I know, I know, I know, I know. In the last episode, you already said that a million times. But I swear, most people, even myself, have a lot of trouble taking these two steps seriously and truly applying them every time we eat. It's easy to think that chewing and relaxing while eating is just fluff or it's not that big of a deal, but those two habits really are the basis for proper digestion. So one of our next problems with digestion would be experiencing bloating or severe belly pain every single time you eat. And those symptoms could be signs of many different issues, but one of the most common issues would be SIBO small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's a huge issue for many people. And it means that the bacteria in your large intestine has overgrown into your small intestine. It's not necessarily good or bad bacteria. It's just bacteria that's in the wrong location. Now, we are not going to go deep into the topic of SIBO here. SIBO is such a massive topic that someone could actually have a whole podcast that's only about SIBO, and you could think of thousands of episode themes for the topic of SIBO. So right now, um, if you are wondering more about SIBO, you should go and seek out more information elsewhere. But just know that it's a pretty common issue And it's something that I struggled with severely for many years, but many people struggled with it more mildly for many years. So how this works is that you um, have bacteria that's in your large intestine where it's supposed to be, and some reason it overgrows and it backs up into your small intestine. Now, if you're not sure about these intestines, the large and the small and what they do, remember to go back to last week's episode and review what these organs do and where they're located. But just to say it one more time, you have bacteria in the large intestine where it's supposed to be. But if it overgrows and it grows backwards and ends up in the small intestine, that's not good. And that's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Now this kind of bacteria that might overgrow and land in your small intestine is fed by any form of carbohydrates or sugars. Every time you eat a carb, even a tiny, tiny speck, it feeds the bacteria and causes very uncomfortable symptoms. Common symptoms of SIBO are belly distension, like bloating, constipation or diarrhea, belly pain, And people with SIBO usually say that they can't eat anything or everything makes them bloated or makes them sick. So that's one theory I have about why the carnivore diet is so incredibly successful for so many people because a carnivore diet is zero to very, very, very few carbs, maybe one or two carbs a day, but it's essentially zero carbs. And if you eliminate all sugars and carbohydrates, then you're no longer feeding the SIBO bacteria and causing it to um, create these gases that give you the bloating and the belly pain. 
eating a carnivore diet doesn't treat SIBO. It doesn't make SIBO go away permanently or even at all, but it stops feeding the bacteria that cause a lot of the the symptoms of SIBO. So I hope that that's clear for everybody. But I do think that that's one reason why so many people get massive success on a carnivore diet is because they're eliminating uh, eliminating carbohydrates that feed the SIBO bacteria. And then lots of people experience this initial uh, huge benefit of a carnivore diet. And then after a number of months or maybe a year or two, they hit a plateau and they don't get any better. And that's a big theory I have as well, where maybe they've stopped feeding a lot of bacterias, but they're not really correcting the gut problems with a carnivore diet. They're just alleviating a lot of the symptoms. So if that's you, you may want to consider going a little bit deeper in working on your gut health. You would want to know about the ileocecal valve if you're concerned with SIBO, or even if you're not, if you're just somebody who wants to be healthy. Look up somewhere online a diagram of the ileocecal valve so that you can see where it is on the human body. But I'm going to guide you right now with my words so you can find it yourself on your own body. Take your right hand and put your right hand on your right hip bone, so that bony point in the front of the the pelvis, so it's not the back of your pelvis or the side, but the front of your body. You have two hip bones, and put your right hand on your right hip bone in the front, and then move your right hand an inch or two towards your center, like towards your midline, towards your belly button, and then move it up about an inch or so, and press way in. You might have to kind of bend forward or round your spine forward so that you can dig your fingers in and kind of massage or move your fingers around so that you can feel there's, uh, it might be really tender for some people or there might be something in there that feels like part of your intestines that you can actually feel. Now, if you didn't find it don't worry. It's actually a little bit difficult for people to find themselves. You can always look up videos on YouTube for how to massage or how to adjust your ileocecal valve or look up diagrams. But the ileocecal valve is the valve that opens to let the contents from the small intestines transfer over to the large intestines. So it's this flap in between the small and large intestines that allows the food to go through. And after the food has passed through into the large intestine, that flap on the ileocecal valve is supposed to shut so that the bacteria can't move backwards and go back into the small intestine. Unfortunately for some people, that flap gets stuck open where it shouldn't be. So the door is open and then poop or bacteria can just start to travel backwards through the flap where it's not supposed to go and land in the small intestine. So problems with the ileocecal valve can absolutely be one of the causes of SIBO. Some people have the ileocecal valve actually stuck shut and that would cause more of an issue with constipation, uh, you know, stagnation, getting really puffy, problems with lymph flow, all kinds of issues when the door or the ileocecal valve is stuck shut. So there are self-adjustments that you can learn to do. You could just look up on YouTube 
how to adjust your ileocecal valve yourself, you know, search something like that, or find a chiropractor that knows how to adjust the ileocecal valve. And it's very simple for them. All they do is kind of press their fingers in and massage around and they can feel if it's inflamed or not and help you out with that. But SIBO, back to that topic, SIBO can be very, very tricky to treat, but totally necessary if you have it. If you continue to experience SIBO or have that that problem and you do nothing about it, eventually you probably won't be able to eat any food and you'll suffer major nutrient deficiencies. One of the easiest and quickest ways to manage the SIBO symptoms is to do a carnivore diet. So what I mentioned earlier. And just remember, carnivore will not get to the root cause or treat SIBO, but it will stop you from feeding the SIBO bacteria and you'll start feeling better quickly. You can work with a practitioner or do your own research on how to find the root cause of your SIBO. It could be the open ileocecal valve. It could also be caused by poor HCL production. Remember from last week, HCL is your stomach acid. If you don't make enough stomach acid or it's not working properly, typically you'll end up having SIBO because you aren't killing off a lot of bad pathogens and after they go through your stomach, they end up in your small intestine and they haven't already been killed off. Um, The SIBO could be caused by vagus nerve issues V-A-G-U-S nerve issues. That would be something for you to look into as well. Um, And just know that chronic stress is also a huge cause of SIBO and hiatal hernia could be a cause of SIBO. We talked about that last week. So there are just many, many causes and those ones that I just named are just a few. And you could be experiencing one of those things or a few or all of them and more. So treating SIBO typically involves doing some kind of diet like a carnivore diet or something even more extreme. I know when I treated my SIBO a number of years ago, I did something called an elemental diet, which we won't get into right now, but it's essentially doing a three-week fast where you don't eat any food at all and you're only consuming high quantities of amino acid supplements and then very tiny quantities of butter and honey. And again, I'm not even going to go into why those foods are chosen, but um, if you were to do your own research, you would find that you can make your own elemental formula, and it's like the very basic, basic broken down nutrients that you would need to keep your body surviving during that three-week fast. And then in the meantime, during that fasting, you're also taking either herbal or medication types of antibiotics. I don't recommend the prescription medications. Those can cause quite a few more problems than benefits, but I do recommend getting on a protocol of the herbal antibiotics if SIBO is the issue for you. But remember, this is such a heavy, heavy topic that if you aren't really a master at researching and coming up with plans for yourself, then you're going to want to work with a practitioner who specializes in SIBO and typically not go the medical route. The medical route usually results in people's SIBO returning time and time again or coming back even worse. Um, other kinds of more natural or holistic remedies usually work a lot better. But remember that the true treatment will be fixing 
the cause of your SIBO. So once you've starved the bacteria and you've killed off the bacteria, you have to also correct what made the problem happen in the first place or it will just come back. Now there are tests that you can do to find out if you have SIBO. There are breath tests, but they are very expensive, very inconvenient, and typically inaccurate. So I actually am not a big fan of doing the breath test. I did those when I was doing my treatments, but the more I've learned since then, I'm learning that they're just quite inaccurate and not the greatest way to go. So if you suspect that you have SIBO or you want to know more about it, definitely reach out to some kind of expert in SIBO to help you out with that. Our third issue that can go wrong with digestion would be gut dysbiosis. And gut dysbiosis means that you have an imbalance of the right gut bacteria. You should have about four pounds of bacteria in your large intestine, and that would include about 20 to 40,000 different species. Did you know that? These bacteria run your whole personality, your cravings, your preferences, your energy levels, moods, your likes and dislikes. All of that is run by your gut bacteria. Antibiotics can wreck this by killing off your bacteria, killing off the good and the bad. And people who took a lot of antibiotics as a child or an adult will definitely struggle with gut dysbiosis. Now, I'm not saying that nobody should ever take antibiotics ever. For some cases, they can save your life and can be worth using. But it is helpful to look back at your life and think about if you had chronic ear infections as a child or you used, you know, antibiotics for acne medications as a teenager. Lots and lots of people grew up on countless rounds of antibiotics. So if that was you, it's likely that you have gut dysbiosis. So what can you do about that? Well, you can improve the terrain of your gut. There are countless ways to start improving your gut bacteria. And one way is to stop eating sugar and carbs. These foods feed the bad bacteria and contribute to dysbiosis. You can also take specific types of probiotics and gut healing supplements to start improving your gut terrain. It is really important to choose probiotic supplements that have been studied and tested and shown to help with specific issues that you're having. Don't take just any probiotics that you find at the store or at Costco or even the co-op or GNC or Walgreens or Amazon. You would want to choose a probiotic supplement that is very high quality and like I said, has been studied and tested and shown to help with specific issues. And not all probiotics are the same. So you would want to either do your research to find one that's going to help with your issues or contact me or contact a specialist who can help you pick out specific types of probiotics to help with what you are experiencing. Now, if you're not doing that or you want to do more than that, eating fermented foods like kimchi and homemade coconut milk kefir can also populate your gut with good bacteria. And you're going to want to stay tuned all the way to the end of this episode because I have a surprise for you on this topic that you want to hear about, I promise you. Be cautious, though, of choosing yogurt or kombucha or store-bought kefir. 
These foods are typically high in sugar or alcohol and don't have bacteria that actually populate the gut. Oftentimes when you eat something like yogurt or kombucha, you just poop the bacteria out and it doesn't stay in your gut and populate it to create a healthier terrain. So that bacteria is not necessarily good or bad, it just isn't the kind that's going to stick in there. Plus, oftentimes those foods are filled with extra sugar or ingredients that you wouldn't want to be consuming. So if you are going to be consuming fermented foods, my biggest recommendations would be kimchi. And you can buy kimchi in the store. And yes, sauerkraut or you know pickles, those are nice foods too. But the kimchi is really different. And because of the variety of the types of hot peppers they use and different vegetables and just the way that kimchi is made, it is going to have more of the bacteria that's beneficial for populating your gut than something like sauerkraut. Sauerkraut would be fine to eat, but it's not nearly as sophisticated of a bacteria for this issue. And then homemade coconut milk kefir is also something that will be fantastic for your gut bacteria. And remember, stay tuned to the end because I have a little surprise for you. So our next and our last way that digestion can go wrong is leaky gut. And I would encourage you to pull up the show notes, projectketopodcast.com backslash episodes backslash S6E8. Those are the show notes. And look at this diagram that I've posted that says healthy gut versus leaky gut. It's like this picture of the gut um, tight or loose junctions. So on one side, you're seeing that there's tight junctions. And if you're not looking at the picture, just imagine if we went inside of your gut and we're going to look at the lining of the gut, so the wall of the gut, and you would want to have this thick mucus layer to help protect the lining, and you would want these tight junctions. So you can imagine these sections that are tightly compressed together so nothing can leak out, and the only things that can get through those junctions would be nutrients. So you would want the nutrients to get through for sure. And what isn't going to get through would be pathogens like bad bacteria in the food or whole big pieces and particles of food. You don't want that to get through. And then you've got all these microvilli. So they're like little hairs lining the hole inside of your intestines. And those are nice and fluffy and lifted. And those help to absorb nutrients. So you want them lively and a lot of them and, you know, fluffed up and working well. But if you have a damaged gut or you're experiencing leaky gut, then oftentimes that thick mucus layer is either gone or it's so diminished it's just barely there. And then the tight junction is no longer tight. It's compromised and it has these big gaps and openings where pathogens and undigested food particles can actually get through the the junctions and land in your bloodstream where they're not supposed to be. And when that happens, you experience autoimmune reactions. So anybody that has any autoimmune condition, including type 1 diabetes and Hashimoto's and 
all kinds of autoimmune issues that it seems that almost everyone is struggling with, you would want to perk up your ears and really listen and take this serious. Leaky gut is absolutely the underlying issue here with autoimmune. So, though, and one more thing before we finish that up, the microvilli. Oftentimes, if you have leaky gut or compromised gut, your microvilli, those little hairs that are supposed to be nice and lifted and fluffy, they are smashed down and damaged and kind of just destroyed, and then you're unable to absorb nutrients very well. So if you haven't gone into the show notes to look at that image, I highly recommend it. That is going to help you understand what I'm talking about here. So let's review one more time because leaky gut really is critical. Remember this season is going back to the basics and leaky gut is one of the most basic concepts that most people think they understand, but they really don't. So I'm just going to say it one more time. Leaky gut means that the tight junctions that line your small intestine have become leaky. You're supposed to have a thick mucus layer inside your gut that protects the lining. There should be thousands of microvilli, those little hair-like structures, that line the gut and help absorb nutrients out of the food. The mucus layer can become thin and eroded, and the microvilli get all smashed down and destroyed. Now your food particles can go through the gut lining and land in your bloodstream where they never should be. Your body can create an immune reaction to the food in your bloodstream, and this can show up as many different symptoms autoimmune symptoms or skin rashes, acne, headaches, mood problems, anxiety, digestive issues, brain fog, joint pain, dark circles under your eyes, frequent sickness, sinus or congestive issues, coughing, flaky skin, eczema, constipation, diarrhea, and so much more. Herbicides and pesticides like Roundup or glyphosate are contributors to leaky gut issues. And on another note, just a different thing here, more and more pesticides and herbicides are being used every single year. Other than wrecking your digestion, they are also hormone disruptors. And some pesticides mimic your hormones and give faulty messaging to your cells. Atrazine can turn testosterone into estrogen, a problem for feminizing boys and men, like creating man boobs on boys and men, or excess body fat and increased prostate problems, and problems for girls and women in hormone disruption would be like PMS, infertility, early puberty, cramping, excess body fat, mood swings, and increased menopausal symptoms. So along with wrecking your gut and disrupting hormones, glyphosate, and that would be the active ingredient in Roundup, and atrazine and other herbicides and pesticides have been reported to increase the risk of cancer, celiac disease, and autism. And when your food isn't organic, you can assume that you are consuming glyphosate. And as a side note, unfortunately, even if you eat 100% organic like I do, there is glyphosate in our water, it's in the air, it's blowing over onto organic farms from other farms, and unfortunately with the way that our world, and especially the country that I'm living in, the United States, is functioning, we really cannot avoid glyphosate. So yes, it is still important that you don't buy conventionally raised vegetables, you would want to have organic vegetables, but still just expect you are still consuming some glyphosate or some pesticides and herbicides. And remember, 
those are what are causing these leaky gut problems in the first place. So that is going to be more than an issue with the leaky gut. It's hormonal issues, cancer, autism, all kinds of other problems. But right now we're talking about leaky gut especially. So what can you do about leaky gut? Eliminating foods that you know cause problems is helpful, but you must cut them out 100% and not cheat or have small amounts every once in a while. You can continue reacting to a food for weeks or months after you eat it. So it's torture for your body if you say that you're gluten-free, but you still eat it once in a while, or you get cross-contamination if you're not careful, or you have it on a birthday. You know, that is going to be torture for your gut if you are trying to heal from these damaged issues. And although eliminating certain foods is helpful short-term, like for months or a few years temporarily, it is not going to fix the problem. If you don't work on deeper healing, you will continue to become sensitive to more and more foods until you can't eat anything. The carnivore diet is the ultimate elimination diet. Most people are not sensitive to meat, so consuming only meat for a period of time can be very healing to help you see clearly which foods you're, re- you're reacting to when you reintroduce them. And if you want to go back and listen to the whole Season 5 of Project Keto Podcast, that is a great place to learn all about the carnivore diet if you're interested. But remember that that isn't going to treat leaky gut. That's just going to help alleviate some of the symptoms from trigger foods. So while you're avoiding the trigger foods, you would need to get on a gut healing protocol. There are countless ways to do this, and it typically involves taking a protocol of supplements to help repopulate the good bacteria, heal the gut lining, and improve neurotransmitters, and get you ready to reintroduce more food and variety. And if you need help getting on a protocol, you can always email me at info at projectketopodcast.com and I can help you out. In some cases, we don't even have to have an appointment. I might just be able to point you in the right direction of some supplements or a protocol. In other cases, it might be better for us to schedule an appointment depending on the severity of your issues. But for everybody, some very simple, helpful gut healing products would be grass-fed collagen powder. Try to get about seven or eight tablespoons every day and drinking homemade bone broth from properly raised chickens or beef. Eliminating genetically modified, so GMO foods, and eating all organic is critical and non-negotiable for healing leaky gut. And remember that leaky gut is typically caused by pesticides in the first place. GMO foods are also engineered to kill bugs and bacteria. And this means that your own bacteria gets severely damaged when you eat GMO. So avoiding pesticide foods, but also avoiding GMO foods is absolutely critical for improving leaky gut. And I know that this topic is so easy for people to brush over because they think that, oh no, I don't have a problem with that. I have a real problem. I have type 1 diabetes or I have a child who's autistic or, oh no, I have cancer. So I have to work on that. And yes, those are really significant problems. But many, 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 many times those issues are caused by leaky gut or they're caused by consuming pesticides, herbicides, and GMO foods. So if you don't get down to the basics and address those 
very, very fundamental issues, then treating cancer or working with autism or managing type 1 diabetes or Hashimoto's or all the other autoimmune conditions or depression is not going to be very successful. You really do have to consider the basics here. And one more thing that we will talk about heavily in a future episode, but I do want to just mention is food sensitivities. Because I did say many times that when you're working on healing leaky gut, it's helpful to eliminate foods that you are triggered by or that you're sensitive to. And if you aren't even sure what that means yet, don't worry, it's going to come up in in an episode pretty soon. But if you do know what that means and you think, oh, I'm going to go get a blood test and find out all my food sensitivities. I just want to say that I don't recommend that. I do not recommend the blood tests for food sensitivities for multiple reasons. One reason, they're very expensive. A second reason, they're known for being wildly inaccurate. And a third reason is that if you can already tell that you're sensitive to a lot of foods, then you're going to get your test results back and it's going to show that you are sensitive to like dozens or hundreds of foods and whoever did the testing for you is going to tell you, don't eat any of the foods that are in that red zone, only eat the foods in the green zone. And if you are a person that's had one of these tests and you see that tons of foods show up in that red zone or the sensitive zone, then the answer is not to cut out all those foods. (gasps) Is that a shock? Sometimes that's a shock for people. Yeah, the answer is don't cut out all of those foods. Just cut out the ones that you know are causing a problem. Like if you can tell gluten, sugar, dairy, corn, and maybe grains are causing you issues, but you can't really tell if cucumbers and asparagus and tuna are causing you problems. Just continue eating those other foods and focus on the gut healing. You will exacerbate the problems if you cut out a massive amount of varieties of foods long term. So I know this is tricky and it's counterintuitive because I have recommended that people use a carnivore diet where clearly that is a very, very narrow diet where you eliminate tons of foods. But I don't recommend that for everybody, and I don't recommend that you plan to do that for the rest of your life or long term. I've taken that approach because I've had such severe gut problems that I really can't even live unless I eat this way. I can't really go to work. I can't exercise. I can't even live my life because I'm in so much physical pain from eating plant foods that eating a carnivore diet has been the only way for me to get through. And then I can put my energy and my focus on gut healing. So that's what I've been doing. I've been working incredibly hard on some gut healing protocols and I've done some stool testing on myself to see what is the issue in there and I can pinpoint some problems. So if you are like that, where whenever you eat, you can't even function, that's similar to somebody who has SIBO. Like if that's a symptom you have, you probably have SIBO. Then you may need to do an extreme type of elimination diet like the carnivore diet for a period of time. But if it's not that case for you, um, 
Try to eat as much food variety as you can, but eliminate the foods that you know are triggers, like gluten and dairy, you know, the obvious big ones that most people shouldn't be eating in the first place. And then work heavily on a gut healing protocol, probably with a practitioner. If you want to do that stool test that I recommend, I can order that test for you and help you interpret the results so you can reach out to me and I can always assist you with that. It's a very unique special type of stool test where you actually get 20 pages of information back about your gut and it's not typical testing. It's a really unique different kind of test that I highly recommend over most other stool tests. But you would want to do something like that and then pinpoint the issues and do the healing and then eventually open up your diet even wider and have as much variety as you can. Remember that one of the biggest signs of health is being able to eat a large variety of foods and still thrive. So if you are like me and you're doing a carnivore diet and you're saying, oh, I'm totally thriving, I'm so healthy, but as soon as you eat a little bit of something else, a little bit of some vegetables, and then you're super bloated or you get all this gas or you're stuck in bed or you have severe joint pain, then that's not good. That is a sign that you are not very healthy at all. And this carnivore diet is just helping you get through, but you need to do some healing in order to be able to have some variety. And it doesn't mean that everybody should have to eat variety every day for the rest of your life. You could use the carnivore diet as a tool But just know that thriving on a carnivore diet is not saying that you have thriving health. It just isn't. If you can eat tons and tons of different types of foods and feel and look fantastic, that is a sign that you have thriving health. So before we close up today, I promised you earlier a fun surprise at the end here. And this is one of my favorite things that I want to share with you. It's my coconut kefir recipe. This is probably one of the most popular recipes that I've ever given out in my classes and to my clients and at Studio Time Out. It's just been absolutely so popular for a few reasons. One, it's super easy and anybody can make it. You don't have to have any skills in the kitchen. And two, it tastes great. So I'll just kind of walk you through the process, but you'd want to go to the show notes to actually get the recipe. You would need two cans of full-fat coconut milk. Don't buy the light kind. It's the full-fat. And you need one packet of the Body Ecology Kefir Starter, which is something that you can order from their website. Or you can pick it up at Studio Time Out if you ever want to and you know um, where that's located in Minneapolis. So you open up these two cans of coconut milk, stir them up so that they're totally combined, they're not um, separated, and pour both cans into a clean mason jar. Then sprinkle in this kefir starter, it's kind of like a powder, and stir that in gently, and then you just put a cloth or a paper towel over the top so that dust or bugs don't float into the jar, and let it sit on your counter and don't do anything with it for a couple of days. And if it's summertime where it's warm in your kitchen, it's going to ferment faster. If it's wintertime or cold, it might take a little bit longer. But you can think that it will take anywhere between two to seven days to ferment. And when you smell it, every day you want to take the towel off and smell it. And if it smells sweet, like coconut, 
it's not quite done yet. When it starts to smell a little bit sour or a little bit fermented, then it's done. And at that point, you can put the mason jar lid on, store it in the fridge, and start eating it. And it's a fabulous, fabulous food for improving your gut bacteria. And the specific type of bacteria that's in this body ecology kefir starter is the type of bacteria that does stay in your gut and it helps to populate and make a better environment in your gut. So if you do have some gut dysbiosis going on and you take this kefir, you might experience gas the first few times. So if that's you, if you have some kefir and then you get gas or something weird happens like you're bloated or just something goes wrong, then back off, take a break for a few days, and only have a little bit, like a tablespoon or less, until those symptoms are not happening, and then you can have as much as you want. And people always ask, what does it taste like? Well, it's a lot like having yogurt. It's creamy, it's a little bit of a sour fermented flavor, and it's very similar to yogurt, but more coconutty, less um, dairy tasting. And you can either eat it plain or you can put some berries on it. Some people like to mix some cocoa powder and some stevia in it and it's like a little chocolate yogurt. Or you can put it in your protein shakes. Just don't heat it up because that will kill the bacteria. You wouldn't want to mix it into like a curry or anything like that. Keep it cold or room temperature. And then what's really cool about it is that you can use a third of a cup of that first uh, batch of kefir and put that in your next batch of kefir instead of using the starter packet and it continues to um, grow the bacteria and I believe that you can do that seven times so each packet you can use seven batches and then I think the box you get comes with about five packets so that lasts a long time is that 35 batches I think so you'll have to check my math but I highly recommend it so check out the show notes for this coconut kefir recipe and always please go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or take a screenshot of you listening to this and share it on Instagram and tag me at Madeline Rosie Evergreen or share it with one of your friends and that is how you can pay it forward. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving. And hopefully I see you in the chocolate cake course, and I will catch you in a week. 